Hello and welcome to the first lockdown edition of The Bunktab, Britain's most appropriately slash unfortunately named podcast. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's edition, we'll be discussing two big topics. The coronavirus intensifies. Countries are sealing themselves off. Donald Trump has finally admitted that something might be up. And according to Lee documents, Public Health England believes 8 million people may be hospitalised. And if COVID-19 is going to change the economy fundamentally, will governments be forced to look again at the idea of a universal basic income? All this and more in this week's edition of The Bunker. Hello, you might notice a slight change in this week's podcast. We're recording from different locations. Uh, We hope we won't be on lockdown for too long, but who knows? For now, let's say hello to our guests in their secret locations. Aisha Hazarika is a noted comedian, writer, former Labour spin doctor, and now editor of the Londoner Diary and the Evening Standard. Hi, Aisha. Hello, Dorian. How's how's life for a Londoner Diary? Well, given that our whole thing is about you know, what's happening in the night scene in London and going to parties and events, it's proved to be very, very difficult. Um, Literally everything has um, dried up in terms of socialising and and launch parties and things like that. So we're having to be very, very creative. Um, This year's local London mayor elections have been pushed back to next year. Labour special conference announced the new leader is off. Uh, They've even been called to postpone the leadership election entirely. What other changes to to the political calendar do you expect to see? Do you think that Parliament will be working from home very any day now? Well, I think as time is going on, it is actually more and more difficult to make the argument to everybody else to self-isolate, um, particularly small businesses um, that can't afford not to. Um, and then Parliament just carries on as before. I mean, they've now stopped... Uh, external visitors coming in, but everything else is still the same. I mean, we did a, a, a wee story in the diary today. So just as Boris Johnson was saying, you know, everybody change your behaviour, uh, social distance. You know, you you know, an MP got into contact with us and said that they walked past the Red Lion, which is the famous pub um, across the road from Downing Street. It was absolutely heaving. It was heaving all night long um, with sort of civil servants, special advisors, journalists. So, um, which, which night was this? Just last night. Last night. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So, I think there's sort of like there's, there and, and staffers actually young staffers have been in touch saying we're very confused because everything is everything is carrying on as normal, um, yet we're telling everybody else outside Parliament to change their behaviour. So I don't know how sustainable that is. Well, we'll be talking more about what is and is not sustainable in a bit. Also with us today is Ros Taylor, editor of LSE Brexit. Hi, Ros. We're about to you. Well, I can't divulge my location, but I can tell you that there's a Darth Vader trying to break through the wall and some very tattered posters of Emperor Palpatine and stormtroopers. So it's not my normal working location. Are you in in Lucasfilm? (laughs) That is correct. Yeah. Well, schools uh, still aren't closed. We've we've been told to avoid theatres and concerts, but they haven't actually been shut down. Um, I'm not sort of clamouring for a complete shutdown of normal life. Um, But I mean... Surely it shouldn't be left to individuals uh, to decide what to do, considering, as we've seen, certain individuals, including the Prime Minister's own father, um, aren't going to take any of the advice anyway. Are they going to have to make it uh, official very soon? Yeah, I think they will. I mean, it's um, it's wrong for two reasons, really. One, it's completely unfair on the venues themselves, because they have it's putting the onus on them to decide. And if 
they need money desperately to survive. It's a very difficult decision. Secondly, it's very difficult with human psychology wants to go out there and have a kind of last gasp. And I think that's what you were seeing almost perhaps in the red line last night. And I think you saw that maybe in the Stereophonics concert that a lot of people tweeted pictures of the enormous crowds there in Cardiff last weekend. If you have been looking forward to a massive big event with thousands and thousands of people, you know, a part of you is going to say, oh, to hell with it. I'm just going to go. And it's the wrong thing to do, but it's, it's, it's tempting. And so that's the other reason, I think, why it's important to draw a clear line. Well, you look for signals, don't you? And in that case, you'd look for signals to the promoter or the band to call it off or to the government to tell you not to go. Yeah. Um, but you kind of feel like, well, if it's happening, then it must be OK to go. Exactly. And yeah. of course, it's not OK to go because they play stereophonic songs. <laughs> <laughs> also, I just want to pick up something. The the red line is literally like that every night. Like every night is the last hurrah for in, politi- in politics <laughs> in terms of like ramming the red line and, and drinking yourself into oblivion. Um, and also, hello to our guest, Johnny Ross Tatum. Uh, where are you, Johnny? Hi there. I'm at home uh, this week. So I'm studying part time at the LSE. And obviously, um, all classes are cancelled. And I teach part time in Leeds. And um, I'm going to go ahead with that later this week, depending on whether schools are still open. Um, so you're going to be talking to us about UBI, which has been um, a sort of increasingly hot topic uh, over the last few years. I mean, it's, a, it's an older idea than that, but it's been, um, it's been discussed more and more all the time. But now you've got Mitt Romney proposing giving every adult American a grand a month during the outbreak. Um, and former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, whose big idea this was, now just seems like this kind of prescient, heroic figure. Has it been weird seeing uh, UBI re-enter the conversation in this really dramatic, unexpected way? I don't, I don't think it has been terribly surprising because, you know, a base, universal basic income is about financial security and making sure people can pay their bills at the end of the month, uh, make sure people can have enough to uh, not, ha- not have to go to a food bank or not have to go out on the street. But we know that uh, financial insecurity is very widespread in our society. And surveys have shown that nearly 16 million people in the UK have less than £100 in savings. So when events and crises like this happen, it really shines a light on the insecurity that's, that's in, in our society. And a universal basic income would provide vital relief and, and security for households across the country, not just in times like this, but at all times. Well, we're going to talk about that later and also other measures uh, that the government uh, can take to basically keep people afloat financially. Let's start with the great big coughing elephant in the room. The worst public health crisis for a generation, as Boris Johnson called it, now seems like a massive understatement. Ros, things are moving very fast. Can we rely on people to self-isolate or do we have a are we, are we really seeing kind of human nature in, in in action here and basically people won't as as, as we we're saying with the, with the gig but a gig is perhaps a special occasion and people can understand you know you can see why people might want to avoid a massive gathering of stereophonics fans but the self-isolation now seems to be moving faster and faster and and, and now you know don't even go to the sort of cafe um are we really dealing with a communications problem here that really advice is not enough. Yes, I think we are. But the problem is ultimately that we don't have the resources to police 
a massive crackdown of the kind that France has put in place. It's actually interesting, uh, if you listen to what's been happening in France and the address that um, Macron gave last night, um, he was saying, look, I told you to start social, uh, isolating yourself. And what happened last weekend, you all went out and I saw people celebrating in the streets and there were parties, etc, etc. So basically, now I'm going to have to crack down. And it's very difficult to do that um, and to really go in very hard unless you ha- are willing to start putting the army on the streets, unless you have enough police to actually make sure that people stay in their homes. And even then, it's going to be hard because if you get to the point when you're saying to people, no, you can't go out, um, I've, you know, a, a random official is telling you that you can't do that, people are going to kick back enormously against that. I think it's a little bit easier for France in some ways because it's a more deregistered society. Um, it, I think it is better prepared for that sort of thing. I think in Britain, it will be very hard to enforce this kind of self-isolation. So you have to basically rely on people's sense of duty and obligation to sort of towards society. And f- to be blunt, fear. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think perhaps yeah. that's even more potent than... Um, than a sense of kind of responsibility. Yeah, um, but of course, you're, you're with a fear. I mean, the fear, I think, kicks in if you're in a vulnerable group or and perhaps if you're older, though not all older people feel that way. As we've seen in recent days, there's plenty of people saying, um, well, I'm over 70, but I feel fine and it's not going to affect me. So you shouldn't underestimate the extent to which people can be in denial. Well, I mean, until yesterday, the UK seemed determined to sort of go it, go its own way compared to the rest of Europe. Um, and, you know, they were asking a lot of trust. They were like, OK, yes, you know, look at Italy and France. We're not doing that. But this is because we have a plan and here are our medical experts. Now that it's changing, um, do you think the initial strategy was just was, was totally flawed? Are they adapting uh, to new you know, to new information, the growth of the virus, or were they, in fact, wrong from the start, as many people were saying? Because I I was unsure. I was unsure. And I don't think any of us can be sure because we don't know how this is going to play out. It may be, for example, that the sharp crackdowns that we've seen in places like China will have a rebound effect and the virus will just keep on coming back and it we won't acquire any kind of enough immunity to to prevent possibly years of disruption in our societies and i don't think anybody knows it's very hard i think they were also trying to minimize the economic shock to society in their pronouncements and not to alarm people unnecessarily. And that too, to be fair, is very important because one of the things we're seeing now is people saying, my business is about to go bust. I'm about to be made unemployed. These things have effects. And for all that it is desperately important to protect the most vulnerable people in society, if you shut down society, that has that has enormous, enormous knock-on effects. And they're not effects that we are used to coping with or thinking about because we haven't had to do that. This is completely new territory. And we're just beginning to discover. It's like a Brexit times a thousand in terms of the unwanted impacts that are happening. Yeah. I mean, it makes, <laughs> no, it makes, it makes even the worst case scenario for no deal seem, seem kind of like a, a minor road bump. 
It makes yeah. us all nostalgic for Brexit, quite frankly. I mean, I was finding myself thinking I'd, I'd kill for a meaningful vote right now. I really would. You know, I miss the Malt House compromise. This is what I want to be talking about, not sort of a scene from Contagion. Oh, God, yeah, totally. I mean, I've had to cut back on Twitter enormously recently because I find it very hard to deal with the spectacle of many, many highly intelligent people desperately seeking confirmation of their hunches oh. and to a certain extent their biases. Oh. And I and there's literally nothing else on Twitter. Whereas before, you know, I was always interested in the minutiae of Brexit and what was going on. It was a lively place. Now it's just fear driving everything. Well, I saw I d- Niall Horan from One Direction, ex of One Direction, uh, celebrating the fact that his album was very close to going to number one. And I couldn't decide whether this was just an obscenely irrelevant tweet or actually a rather charming reminder of normality because 99.9% of Twitter is all about one thing. Well, I mean, I suppose people will be consuming music and content and things like that. So weirdly, I suppose those industries, well, certainly the, you know, the, the, the recorded music side of things will still probably carry on. So in a way, you know, he's probably, in fact, if you're quite savvy, this is quite a good time to promote your um your music well it's worked we've mentioned him on the bunker yeah well i mean um, this is going to do it for him let's be honest <laughs> this, like, I mean, this is top. it he has hit the big time but i just going back to what ros was saying about france and and this society i just feel that like we are and this is part of our unique charm as as being british we are so non-deferential we do not listen to anybody and because of the last three years of Brexit we're all individual experts in our own mind we don't need proper experts anymore we just um, listen to a phone-in um, get our opinions from that often phone into a phone-in with no knowledge but you know become declare ourselves um, you know like a world expert so you know f- France and Italy I, I mean I, I just think we're slightly Differences. I mean, also France are going to stay in because they've got better wine and better cheese. Let's be honest. I mean, if I was in France, I'd stay inside the whole time. Let's be quite honest. But I do worry. Like this whole you can half in, half out um, pronouncement from the prime minister. I mean, I'm glad that they have given a bit more um, of a definitive um, steer and that they have kind of changed course. But at the same time, it's so desperately confusing for people. You you shouldn't go out, but you can if you want. And I worry that it's going to be the worst of all worlds. It's going to mean that obviously small businesses, pubs, etc., are going to have a hard time. They'll probably still try and stay open. And at some point, we will all crack after about four days, go to the pub. Not Not huge numbers, but enough to keep spreading the virus and, and be self-defeating to the original point of, of doing this. Well, the, the government seems to finally realise that paywalled articles and leaking to Peston are no substitute for, for sort of proper press conferences. Um, but in that kind of, um, in that period where there wasn't enough official information, it certainly wasn't being explained well enough, uh, people, I saw some wild stuff about herd immunity, which now appears to, we seem to, you know, that seems to have been, uh, misexplained and so and so we've we misunderstood it anyway but some people were seeing it as some kind of like eugenicist plot from Dominic Cummings to sort of cull the population uh, because herd is like cattle and therefore they're culling us like cattle and other sort of conspiracy theories and so has this been a kind of as part of the problem being that this government is just used to releasing information in kind of you know, through kind of sneaky leaks and anonymous briefings. And, and, and actually what's needed is this very, very old-fashioned 
speak to the nation daily press conference? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, I mean, I'm no fan of this government, but they're not the only government to have used these sneaky ways of leaking things. You know, um, time immemorial governments have done that, certainly when I worked, um, you know, in government. Obviously, I would never do anything like that. But, you know, it was pretty much, you know, we, Alistair Campbell had his favourite journalist, his pestons of the day, if you like. Um, and so that that's not unusual. However, and, and and on the flip side, I think what you've just said and what Ross said earlier, the, the biases are absolutely off the wall. I mean, this idea, I mean, I, I, I've been trying to not engage on Twitter that much over the last couple of days because it has just gone completely batshit. And, you know, there were so many people going, ha, 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 this is the proof that Boris Johnson wants to execute um, loads of old people. I mean, there was a hashtag, Boris the Butcher, which, you know, I am no fan of the man, but that is just, for a start, these are the people who vote for him. You know, why is he going to want to sort of kind of exterminate all of these um, people? So I think everybody, you know, does need to calm down a bit. It is, you know, really quite sensible people I've seen just come up with ridiculous things. But the government has not helped itself in a, in a crisis like this. And it's tough for them, but communication is critical. And what they should have done from day one is establish these press briefings. I'm, I'm glad they're happening now. But I also think they have to make sure that they allow the medical and the scientific experts the freedom to really run those press conferences the way they want to and answer the questions they want to and they're not sort of cowed or, or hemmed in. So I think where we are is better now, but the comm strategy has been pretty woeful. And as you say, people putting articles behind paywalls, even if it's only just for an hour or two hours, you know, we're so thirsty for information at the moment from the government that if anything comes out, you know, we often make our minds up within half an hour of it coming out. So it's the, those, those, those first few moments are kind of golden in terms of getting information out to people. A big problem too is that this feeds very easily into the austerity narrative. And after 10 years of the government putting into place measures that, in many cases, you know, have ensured that poor people suffer as a result. Many people, in some ways, understandably, jump to the conclusion that they are now putting into place a policy that is going to ensure poor people and disabled people suffer. And it's part of, I've, I've seen a sort of crossover, if you like, between those two narratives, and they've, mm. they've moved very easily between each other. And so, that's partly the government's fault, of course, in terms of the things it said and the way it's behaved in the past and the way that Johnson in particular has abused and broken down our trust in him. And now he suddenly wants it. And so I do get why people think, well, why the hell should I believe you now? Well, he's coming out and he's sort of trust, trust in me, trust the experts. Um, which, and he's a, hard, he's a hard pitch man for that idea. Yeah, he's he's not exactly uh he's not a trusted narrator in terms of, you know, dealing with something of this magnitude. Yes, he's been the sort of showboater that took a huge gamble on Brexit and it and it paid off. Um well we for him in the short term it, it's paid off. But yeah, you're right, he's not a trusted narrator um on this. I mean, I I, I found I've had to think very, very carefully about reining in my obvious tribalism on this because I am no fan of this government but I want them to succeed right now because we all need them 
to succeed in terms of how this goes forward. But yeah, I mean, Ros, you are right. That's It's hard for people to trust in them because of their past record. I mean, this could actually be an opportunity for Boris Johnson. Um, you know, often big crises are in some ways like believe it or not good for um you know premierships it gives you something to define yourself by you know you can put your shoulder to the wheel you can try and be this kind of father of the nation type figure show everybody that you're straining every sinew to to look after um you know your citizens and all this stuff but i think the because they have really bungled the the comms in this critical first week and because of the the very brutal backdrop of 10 years of, of austerity and you know quite a kind of pun- and still not really kind of getting that um people are are worried but i i just think the big thing they've shot themselves in the foot on is this very kind of confused information about businesses and people got businesses staying open yet people not going to them. I think this is something which is really, really going to damage them, given that they are meant to be the party of business, given that they they just won a, a huge majority saying to the country, by the way, we're not the party of big business. We're the party of the little guy. We're the party of the people that are going to listen to you, your kind of small operations, sometimes one man band, two, three, four people in your company. We're rooting for you. Now, it shows that it's a completely different story. Ross, the supermarkets have said that, um, that their no-deal kind of wargaming has actually helped them with this, and they're constantly not, not according to the scenes I saw in Sainsbury's this morning. <laughs> hasn't, but anyway, well, they are constantly saying we we have got. Um, well, I, but this is this is the problem that for the supermarkets they've kind of worked out how to keep the supply chains going. I mean, not you know indefinitely, but certainly for now. Um, but perhaps what the message of no-deal kind of planning has sent to uh, average shoppers is stockpile. And so people are kind yeah. of stockpiling in quite sort of a run. Like no one's told them to stockpile. Nobody has, isn't, nobody has said, oh, we're going to run out of um, toilet paper and pasta. Mm. Um, nobody, this, and this was obviously before any sort of talk of a lockdown. So I just wondered whether somehow we've kind of like, we've, we've sort of trained people to be, to be ready to stockpile. All those jokes about, lentils and big bags of rice we made on Romaniacs have, uh, yeah, have so brainwashed you, the nation. <laughs> yeah, it makes you realise as well how relatively few people must have been stockpiling for Brexit, presumably because you know, so many people thought it was a good idea compared to now when everyone is literally piling in. Um, I also think that there's a lot of confusion about the stock stockpiling. I mean, to, not to return too much to the subject of loo roll, but don't stockpile loo roll. Loo roll, you're not going to need loo roll when things get really bad. Honestly, you're not. It's not going to be your first concern. And I you find might need some loo roll. <laughs> no, no, you won't. Because so, you know, between zero shower, and fifty rolls. <laughs> if you've got a shower, then you can always handle these problems without wanting to get into two. It's not. It's not an imperative. And I, I think there's almost a sort of parody of stockpiling and you, you you know you it's 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 just taken off by itself um it ha- it bears no relation to what is actually useful in the event of a crisis um johnny this crisis seems to have inspired kind of a range of um responses from people there's been huge acts of spontaneous kindness uh you know donations to you know food banks sally hughes beauty banks people offering to you know do the shopping for vulnerable neighbors and then, of course, scenes of absolute disaster movie carnage uh, in Asda and Lidl. 
What's been your experience so far in terms of how the public are behaving? I think I think it's a it's a it's a mix, and we don't we don't quite know the full scale of it. I think there's definitely a lot of fear and anxiety, though, because you know this virus isn't just going to affect people who, who contract the virus. It's not just going to affect people who are, have to stay at home because they're self isolating. It's it's likely to affect all of us. You know, I've talked to lots of people who are worried about being laid off because their small business that they work for relies on events that are being cancelled. Um, a lot of sole traders are understandably worried that their income is going to be a shot due to this due to this crisis. So there's lots of people worried about what's going to happen. And so it's kind of, under, in a way, it's, it's, un, it's likely that there is going to be some panic um, but most of the most of the the people I've spoke to and the people I've seen are, you know, just determined to get through this really, and, and hope that the government and society will support them to do it. This is kind of, you know, ground zero of British kleptocracy. They say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm Brian Kloss, the host of Power Corrupts. Come explore the dark side of power on topics ranging from propaganda to conspiracy theories, mercenaries to biological warfare, and money laundering to election rigging. If you tell a small truth, sometimes you will accept a bigger lie. Subscribe now to Power Corrupts, wherever you listen to podcasts. However long this crisis lasts, people still need to get paid. How do you ensure people have enough to live on and resuscitate the economy after what will probably be the biggest economic shock since the Second World War? The idea of universal basic income, UBI, has been dismissed as utopian in the past, but could it have a central role to play in a post-COVID working world? To explain more, we have founder of the Buchanan Institute, Scotland's first student-led think tank, and ambassador for Basic Income North, we heard from him earlier. Hello again, Johnny Ross Tatum. Hello, Dorian. Thanks for having me on the show. So, well, it's a pleasure. First up, can you give us the idiot's guide to, uh, to, to UBI? What's, what is the, the basic concept? So a universal basic income is a payment to everybody, a regular payment to everybody, um, regardless of income. It works in a very similar way to the basic state pension and a very similar way to the child benefit. And the idea is that it reduces poverty, increases economic security, and gives a income boost for the majority of people. The highest earners in most models will essentially pay their UBI payments back intact, so it doesn't enrich Premier League footballers, but it should give an income boost to the majority, reduce poverty, and provide that vital economic security, which would be really crucial for many households at this time during COVID, but, but also in, in, in other times as well. And supporters of UBI uh, range from kind of utopian socialists to Silicon Valley libertarians uh, and, and it's people you know, on, the, on the right. How does it bring all these people together? Do they mean different things by it? Or are they approaching effectively the same policy, but from kind of different angles? It's very rare to find a policy that kind of attracts uh, love from across the spectrum. It is rare. And... It always has done, actually. I think you know it's, it was originally supported. It's been supported by Martin Luther King. It's been supported by people like Milton Friedman. So it's it's always had uh, support from across the political spectrum. I think it's gaining traction now because the challenges we're facing with 
economic insecurity um, are very widespread. And some people are supporting it because they can see the threat of automation. But economic insecurity and, and the need to increase and strengthen security for families and households is is a need right now. So that's why I think it's support for it is, is building across the political spectrum. And that seems to be accelerating further with a crisis like COVID because it is it is shone a torch on how insecure many of us many of us are and actually how inadequate the safety net is, particularly in this country after 10 years of austerity. Where in the world has it been uh, put into practice or even road tested and what kind of results have we seen? It's been trialled in, in many different countries and, and the trials have been almost universally successful. Um, trials in Canada in the 1970s, for instance, found that with better financial security, people were actually healthier and it reduced the stresses associated with financial insecurity. People were less likely to go to hospital on account of physical or, or mental illnesses. And this was then backed up by the, the recent trial in, in Finland. And in, in some cases, giving uh, particularly women more power to leave abusive relationships because they're no longer reliant on their partners for their survival. One point that lots of people w- might say is, well, if you give people an unconditional income, like a, a UBI, universal basic income, it will stop people working. There hasn't been any trials around the world where people have worked less with a universal basic income. People will still work with this payment. They'll just have more money and more financial security. And that has significant benefits for health, but also for local economies. Um, and how expensive would it be? Because I suppose a lot of people who maybe haven't you know, done the reading on this, their initial instinct is just like, well, how can the government afford to give uh, you know, X billion pounds uh, away to people? Um, I mean, what's the kind of the, the funding model for it? Well, generally, there's, there's a variety of proposals in the UK that have done by, been done by economists and think tanks. And generally in the UK, the proposals for a UBI range from at the lower end, £50 a week for an adult, upwards to £120 a week, and an amount about £40 to £60 a week for children, and also a higher amount for pensioners. And variety of proposals have shown there, there are ways of funding this fairly and progressively through progressive income tax, so higher earners essentially pay their basic income back in tax. Um, But also you've got many other areas. You've got over 1,000 tax loopholes that disproportionately benefit the wealthiest. You could close some of those. You could also look at a carbon tax, which is vital for tackling the climate emergency, but also you could distribute those that revenue to everybody for a universal basic income. Indeed, that is actually supported by people like William Hague and Alistair Darling. from formerly of the so people in the Conservative and the Labour Party. And you've also got another option, which they tried in Alaska, which is set up a sovereign wealth fund and over, over time pay dividends out from that sovereign wealth fund to everybody individually, which is how they funded a, a modest universal basic income in Alaska. Aisha, you worked very closely with Ed Miliband. Uh, he's come out as a, a prominent supporter of UBI. Was this something that he talked about when you work together? Is this a sort of relatively recent uh, fascination for him? Um, I think it was something that he agreed with sort of privately, but that's not where the political zeitgeist was. And I suppose where I would probably slightly disagree with Johnny is that this has been 
a universally popular idea for a long time. I think up until quite recently, I think people were, or even on some parts of the left, were a bit sceptical about this idea. I think nobody, um, I mean, there's lots of evidence to see that, you know, people's physical health and mental health um, could be could be sort of benefited. I was interested about the Finland study. I mean, I've been reading up on the Finland study. I my impression was it was slightly less positive in terms of productivity. It certainly didn't really show that people dropped out of work, but it didn't show that people kind of um, were more productive with their work or, or upskilled. And I think one of the things that a lot of people, particularly on the left, um, have criticised UBI for is that it isn't maybe the the the, the panacea to what are already quite deep structural problems in the economy. Um, for example, the the gender pay gap, the lack of childcare that, that keeps people back or lack of social care, the issues of um, sick pay. I mean, I think it's very interesting when someone like Mark Zuckerberg uh, pronounces that we should have a universal basic income, but he won't pay his tax properly through um, Facebook. So there's lots of other things that need to be closed up. However, I think it's an idea that may have found its time in this emergency um, coronavirus situation. It's interesting that Andrew Yang, that was who was one of the US presidential candidates um, for 2020, he proposed a universal basic income and sort of got laughed at. And now it's something that the the government in America is indeed, you know, possibly looking at as a short-term economic emergency measure to tide people over. So it could be something that in in the short term is is adopted. Um, but also, it is very important to encourage people that you know work is is important, and you know there's there's some on the left that say, oh no, we're going to live in this sort of era of abundance where artificial intelligence and robots and automation means that all the work's going to be done so we can just like kick back and like write poetry the whole time and things but we know that world is sadly not coming and actually people will still have to work and we have to make sure that um and work also brings kind of big positive uh, you know, mental health things, even all of us being cooped up for one day or, or missing our work colleagues and wanting some human interaction. So I, I think it's got some really, really interesting prospects in the short term. And I think this could be the big policy that really, really takes off as a result of this crisis. But whether it becomes a long term staple of our society, I'm not so sure. So for for me and, and many advocates of a universal basic income, this isn't about replacing work. Uh, this is about providing extra income and, sec- and security, and particularly for the majority of households across the country. And it's not a it, it's not a panacea for all ills. We need good quality work. We need good quality um, public services. But we are in a situation, as I said before, where 16 million people have less than 100 pounds in savings, and um, nearly 40 percent of workers have less than a thousand pounds in savings. So one unexpected payment away from debt. So we need to find ways of increasing economic security for people across this country. And a universal basic income could be one part of that, as well as investing in well-paid jobs through um, tackling climate change and and other policies. So, Roz, I've seen people pointing out that if if it's inhumane, um, you know, to disconnect people's water or to evict them for for one missed payment, if it's sort of 
a sign of a kind of, of, of a rather callous society that so many people are, you know, so close to the precipice, you know, just sort of one, one kind of paycheck away from it. Then if you can have UBI and if you can have emergency measures during the crisis, why not have them afterwards? And obviously we've seen before, you know, the many wartime measures, they actually acclimatize citizens to certain, getting certain sort of help from the state which then carries on into the post-war world. I mean, I don't know whether it be UBI or something else, but do you expect that we will actually see um, that some of these emergency measures may well become long-term? Yeah, I think that's quite possible. I think as more people experience precarity and experience what it's like to be uncertain about the future, as they will in the next few months, it may develop a more if you like, compassionate mindset in which they're open to the idea of, you know, that it's not just, we're not living in an atavistic society where we're all just scrabbling to keep afloat, but the state actually can do something to keep everybody afloat. And if, particularly if the government does actually manage, and I hope it obviously, desperately, it does manage to prevent the worst you know the worst effects of the of the coronavirus happening that they might have more trust in the ability of government to actually change their lives for the better as opposed to the very american view which is that you cannot rely on government you must always be self-sufficient that is the way forward so i think there could be a step change in thinking optimistically and um, rishi sunak's budget which feels like it was roughly a thousand years ago um you know, was an uh, was a partial response to sort of early stages of the crisis. Um, now it's it's like we're, we're definitely going into a post austerity period for a while. There's probably going to be have to be a, a sort of crisis budget soon. Um, do you think that that the government is going to have to um, be involved in kind of degrees of state intervention that that Jeremy Corbyn would never have dared suggest? You know that that I, there is there is just no time now uh, for your kind of traditional conservative uh, hands off free market ideology. Um, yes, this is a different difficult sell for conservatives clearly because the idea of free handouts is anathema to much conservative thinking. But there is another way of looking at it, which is that in a UBI would reduce red tape and bureaucracy, which we also know that conservatives hate. It was one of the big selling points of Brexit, ironically, given it's quite the reverse, but that European red tape would be removed. And also Johnson in particular, I mean, populists like catch-all easily understood measures. We've seen in Eastern Europe, people like Viktor Orban handing out sums of money, for example, if you have a certain number of children. And those are very easy for the public to understand. Similarly, a UBI would be very easy for everyone to understand. And it has that advantage in populist terms. The risk, I think, when, a, when conservative governments, if conservative governments implement this, is that you see a reining in of other benefits, which are then which which is justified by the introduction of UBI. So they say, oh well, we don't need to provide this anymore because everyone has this basic income, so we don't need to provide the basics anymore. And that might start to happen, particularly um, in the years after 
one was introduced. Aisha, what I mean, do you think we're going to see from the Chancellor? Well, I think there's, I mean, I think that he is going to have to really revise his budget. I mean, his budget that he unveiled to much fanfare last week really feels like it was a, a different time. And I think a lot of um, spending might have to be slightly deferred. I think they're going to have to increase a lot of, you know, day-to-day spending, which was not really in the plan. A lot of the last budget was future um, spending and borrowing for, for future infrastructure projects. And I just feel that I do agree with Rose that this would be a very easy kind of virtue signal thing for them to do. And it would also be the right thing to do to give people some comfort at this time. You know, there's so many, the the government's getting absolutely hammered at the moment about freelancers and the self-employed, you know, the people who are meant to be the backbone of of the economy because, you know, they're seeing all their uh, income falling away. So this would be, it's a good PR move for them and it's the right thing to do. But I think we do have to sort of get real about the long-term um, consequences of it, you know, as Ross said, what they give with one hand, they would more than likely take with the other. So they would get a huge amount of, um, you know, great press and the tabloid press, the right wing press, etc., saying, hooray, hooray, this is this, you know, fabulous thing. But what would we find down the, the track? Um, you know, tax credits will probably be cutting back. We know universal um, credit is already really, really difficult. And there was no extra money put in that in the budget last week. Um, housing allowances, which have already been trimmed back, could be cut even more. So I don't believe that this government has had a completely ideological shift. And and I don't believe it will have a completely ideological shift. I think they're being pretty ruthlessly pragmatic for political reasons and because of, you know, the 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 the, the sort of drama that's right in front of us but I don't think I think it's naive to think that you know going you know if, if we get through this that that they would commit to having this it just goes against every sort of principle that they, they don't really believe in giving free stuff out to everybody we had a huge amount of controversy over cutting back of child benefit to just two children um they were just on the brink of axing free television licenses to the over 75s. That's had a stay of execution because of the coronavirus. So this is not a government, even with this slightly more populist um, man in charge, this is not a government which like loves giving stuff away for free. And also, we are not a public which actually loves giving stuff away for free. I mean, Let's remember the Labour manifesto had loads of goodies that people were 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 well you know briefed on from free broadband and and the public sort of rejected that. We also talk about people being more compassionate, but I hate to go back to loo rolls. I think the whole loo roll and pasta saga has shown us that we are not living in some kind of compassionate nirvana yet, unfortunately. In the short term, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. Uh, put it well, there's a difference between economic time and financial time and economic subsidiary. You know, the machinery of the economy, but even if that stops, financial time, which is having to pay kind of rent, mortgage, insurance, etc., bills, that goes on. It says it, and it's, it's basically where the two become disconnected, you have huge problems. Now, I've seen already, it's happening here, it's happening in the States, there are mortgage payment holidays, there are moratoriums on rent and utility bills. People are not being punished if they can't make payments. Um, 
but it seems that this is being done by individual banks and, and companies. And I wonder, you know, things are moving fast, like we said. Does the government have to kind of come up with uh, a big plan to reassure people who are worried in numerous sectors um, that they're just not going to be able to uh, afford to pay the bills? No, we can't leave it to the private sector alone. We need to have very clear information from the government on how they're going to support people, as France has been doing with guarantees that paying bills for utilities in particular will be halted. And it's been very clear on those things. It's made sure that nobody will lose their job as a result of the coronavirus. While culturally, Britain is not set up to do that. I think it is something that people are going to be more and more clamouring for in the coming months. And to return to the idea of a universal basic income, if you want a flexible workforce, if you want people, if you're going to expose people to these kind of risks and you're going to say that they may be out of work one month but then back in work another month, and that may be the case for the next few months or so as people are perhaps rehired and maybe even sacked again as a second wave or third wave of the virus. There will be such so much uncertainty that the government really has a big role to play in providing them with a degree of certainty about the, their ability to carry on functioning. Johnny, the last time I was reading about universal basic income in detail was in the context of kind of the, the post-work world, uh, Daniel Suskin's uh, book, recent book. Um, now, a lot of people are getting used to working from home, sort of homeschooling, um, you know, obviously working different hours. But do you think that UBI will play a role in rebuilding the world of work when we get back to normal? In terms of this crisis, we I've, I've been arguing for, for having a UBI permanently. But in terms of this crisis, we, we need something right now immediately to to put money into people's hands to support households and the economy during this crisis. So we, we need an emergency UBI right now to go straight into people's, into, into people's budgets, into people's bank accounts, and to, to support them during this crisis. But after the crisis, it will provide vital security for many people going, when they go back into work. We've come to the end of the podcast, which is when we usually ask the panel for their escape routes from politics. But now we're all locked in our own rooms. The question of which music, TV, books or movies we're relying on takes in a new relevance. Um, Johnny, as your guest, as our guest, we'll start with you. What is uh, your very necessary happy place? Oh, I think... What's distracting you? Going to, the, going to the park, if we are allowed out in this crisis, going to the park and having a walk or a run. Outside. Imagine if you've been escorted by a bobby back from the park and told you ma- you cannot leave the house. Uh, is there a, is there a, is there like a TV show or a book or something you escape into when you're on lockdown? I think just watching watching a series uh, with my partner just on our on our sofa that will be that will be an escape. That sounds good. Um, Aisha, how about you? 
Oh, well, I've actually been quite enjoying the early part of this lockdown just because it's giving me an excuse to binge outrageously. So the thing I have binged on, and I absolutely love it, and I make no apologies for it, it's called Love is Blind on Netflix, and it's the most deranged show (laughs) I've ever seen. It's like Love Island, but on steroids. And I have, at first I was like, oh, this is terrible. And then I'm like completely sort of sucked into it. So that has been my guilty pleasure. And I've also been watching, I haven't finished it yet, but I've been watching Knots and Crosses, um, on the BBC iPlayer, which is really good as well. Um, Roz, how about you? Well, I'm a bit late to this, but I've just discovered the Rule of Three podcast, which Aisha probably knows about, but I didn't. And it's very, very good value. So it's a comedian every week talking to a couple of other comedians about their favourite bits of comedy. And the one I've really enjoyed in the last few days has been Nadia Shireen talking about the the glory of smash hits in its heyday. Well, it doesn't exist anymore, so this will be in the 80s. And just how funny that was. But there's a huge range of just comedians talking about comedy. is just fantastic. So I highly recommend that. So I've got two things. One is the trip to Greece, um, because we're not able to take a trip anywhere. And uh, normally you watch Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon in these uh, picturesque locations and feel envious. But now it's just like science fiction. So it's like, oh, my God, look, they're going to restaurants and they're sitting very close to each other. Uh, and it just feels like um, it's sort of rather poignant. And, of course, it's very funny and they do all the, uh, the impressions. Um, and there's another thing. It's a podcast episode called The Case of the Missing Hit uh, on a regular podcast called Reply All. And it's so incredibly trivial. It's just somebody who remembers, swears that he can remember a song, like literally every melody, every word, a song from the 90s, but can't find any evidence of it online it's as if it's been wiped from history and the whole thing is like an hour-long uh, incredibly dogged investigation uh, to find out what happened to this hit did it did it did it ever exist um, and if so why does nobody else remember it and it's just a kind of delightfully trivial uh, compelling distraction and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks very much to our long distance panel johnny ross tatum aisha hazarika and ros taylor We will be back in some form next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. Thanks for listening. See you next week and take care. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky, Ross Taylor and Aisha Hazarika. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.